welcome to CanalCast, a podcast exploring how our charity, the Canal and River Trust, helps make life better by water. I'm Lewis Howell, and in this series of CanalCast, I'm meeting people throughout the Canal and River Trust to open a window onto the work we do. Come with us as we discover how vital and vulnerable our canals are. In today's CanalCast, we're looking at how the Canal and River Trust manages the infrastructure of an 18th century network in a 21st century world. Today, we look at how our engineering and operations teams manage thousands of aging locks, bridges and aqueducts along the network. We learn how the Canal and River Trust manages repairs and stoppages while balancing respect for traditional building methods and ensures our network is resilient enough for today's needs, including the impact of climate change. First up, it's Sally Body, Regional Engineer for the Canal and River Trust. Sally, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm really good, thank you, and uh, thank you for inviting me. No problem at all, Sally. We appreciate you joining us on the Canal Cast. So, what are the main challenges of managing 2,000 miles of a 200-year-old canal network in the 21st century? Well, I think the first thing to point out is that the canals and rivers that we manage are actually living museums. They're open 24-7, and they're a really important part of our industrial heritage. And very popular, used by millions of people, but they're also very old and delicate and we need to be aware that they suffer a lot of wear and tear. And I, for one, am really proud to be part of the team that helps to look after this, what I see as a national gem. But I think it's also important to make um, our listeners aware that it's not just what you see above ground that's important. The canals also play an important part in the infrastructure of the country. They help to make the country work. So, for instance, the canals convey water supply to thousands of people rely on the canals for their water supply. But we also carry internet cables in the towpath. So we connect people, you know, we carry high voltage cables, we carry high pressure gas mains. You know, there's a lot of things that the canals do that people just aren't aware of. And we have to be mindful of those things when we're planning and uh, organising our works. And of course, then there's the sheer size and scale and age of the network. So altogether, we've got over 35,000 different engineering assets that we look after. Over 1,500 locks, 53 tunnels... 3,000 bridges, 370 aqueducts, including some that are scheduled ancient monuments and really important structures that attract people from around the world to look at them. And added to that, we've got 74 reservoirs and they were all built at different times, at different periods of the canal history, built by different canal companies with different budgets, different materials, different ways of building. So they all have their own unique identity as well. And so we have to, you know, be mindful of that in our planning. Each year we spend about £62 million on core maintenance. That sounds a lot of money, but when, you you know, you look at how many assets we look at, we can't do everything at once. And so it's really important that we plan and prioritise our works. 
added to that is the uncertainty of the future. You know, what will climate change bring us? So um, there's always that risk of the unexpected. You know, when a flood comes along and washes out a lock or an embankment, we have to act quickly and spend money to make sure that the canal infrastructure stays safe. And last year alone, we spent eight, nearly eight and a half million pounds on emergency works. So how do you go about deciding what needs repairing and when you do those repairs? Okay, well, within the trust, there are people like me who have teams of asset inspectors and engineers, and it's their job to go out and inspect all of our structures. And they do that at least once every two months. And it's it's a phenomenal job that they do. And they go out and they monitor change and note defects. And then we prioritise those defects. And we rate all our assets on a scale of A to E, where A is perfect in just built condition. And E is in a pretty sorry state, really not doing its job. And we use that information to help us plan which work we focus on. And you may not know, but we try and do most of our work in the winter where we can uh, minimise disruption to our boating customers and the people using our towpads. It's also important for us to take a long-term view and we need to decide what preventative works we undertake in order to prolong the life of our assets. And so that's another important task that, that my engineers do, is to try and understand and intervene at the right time to prolong the life of the structure, whether that be a bridge, um, an embankment, a tunnel or a culvert, for instance. We're always also looking for innovation to help us spot problems early on so that we can intervene before they become something more major. We're using techniques to monitor uh, rotting inside lock gates so that we can try and predict which gates to repair or replace sooner so that we uh, reduce unexpected lock gate failures. We use a technique where we can drill in an embankment and then we measure the temperature of the ground and we can use that data to then try and identify where leakage is occurring. Is it deep down coming from the bed? Is it coming from the sides? Is it actually groundwater rather than canal leakage? So that, that's quite an innovative technique we use on a regular basis. We also are starting to use satellites too to monitor settlement on our embankments, which is amazing. Who, who would imagine that a satellite could measure sort of such minor movements in an embankment? And I think, you know, considering all of that, um, those amazing advances in how we're using technology and, you know, this new scientific equipment in terms of being able to do this great work, Sally, I can imagine that we need to therefore have increased investment. Where does that investment need to come from then in terms of protecting our canals for the rest of this century? Are we going to need more? I'd say that if we want to protect the heritage of our canals to to maintain something that is so special and unique to our country, you know, if we want to keep them open and working and delivering the well-being benefits that they provide for the millions of people that live alongside them, then I think the answer is yes, we do need more money. You know, personally, when I look at other funding that's going into other major civil engineering schemes like um, High Speed 2 and Crossrail, 
I do think that the funding on the canal network is minuscule in comparison. So, yes, I think we do need more money. But I also hope that everybody that loves canals like I do will continue to support our charity and help us to continue to care for them for many years to come. Thanks, Ali. Great to hear about the challenges of looking after such a vast and ageing network. Let's now hear from Dean Davis, Head of Direct Services at the Canal and River Trust. Dean, thank you so much for joining us. How are you, man? I'm really good, thanks, Lewis. Oh, that's, that's good to hear. We heard there from Sally about the need to plan works in and respond to emergencies. But who does all of these repairs and how does it work? Our repair programme is, is kind of split in three ways. We've got the construction work that my team does and we're called direct services. So, so we're kind of direct labour. Uh, and then we have a range of contractors who deliver the larger, more complex civil engineering works. Contract works are managed by the project delivery team. And then in, in direct services, we spend around about £80 million a year on our, on our construction activities. Uh, and over the winter, uh, we probably spend about 50% of that, £80 million in, in a four-month period. And during that time, we'll be replacing a lot of the lock gates that we see around the network, repairing those locks, repairing the bridges. So basically anywhere where we have to drain the water down, close navigation, we'll be doing that over the winter period. Obviously, hoping wherever we can to minimise the disruption to our customers. So we do it in the winter because there's not as many people travelling around on their boats. There's not as many people walking the canals, etc. And then we've got the emergencies that take place. So I know you'll be talking to Daniel Greenhouch from the uh, Northwest region later on in this podcast. Some of the regions have a reactive team and what they do is they respond to any emergencies, any breakdowns, and they'll either make it safe if it's something that's really big that needs either my team or the contractors come in and do, or they'll fix it themselves. But of course, uh, what we need is uh, we need those eyes and ears out on the canal network from our customers, spotting anything that they think is a problem and let, letting us know through the, through the usual channels. So, Dean, let's talk a bit about the scale of work that you do each year. You know, how do you prioritise planned work in order to allow for those, you know, unplanned and unexpected emergencies? We're doing in total in the trust about £45 million worth of work this winter. So it's about £10 million of mine and around about £35 million in, in the, the biggest civil engineering projects. If we're doing a, a repair on a reservoir, it could cost us between 2 to £5 million just for that one repair on that reservoir. So just to give a bit of scale of the, of the work. So just like we do in, all, in all, all the other years, the planned work get prioritised by Sally's team based on what their assessment of engineering risk is. So they will, they will look at all of, the, uh, all of the problems around the network and they'll say, these are the most important ones and these are the ones that we want you to do. Uh, obviously, when it comes to an emergency, how do we prioritise that? What, 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 is, it, is it closing the navigation? Is it affecting the customers in any way? You know, is it stopping our operations? Is it creating us some additional workload? We're having to send people out every day to do something. And our first basic principle on emergency is, is make it safe. As well as the jobs we've done over the summer this winter, uh, I know that we're picking up dredging on the Marple Fly. We're doing some dredging on the Kennet and Avon Canal, on the Staffordshire and Worcester Canal in the West Midlands. 
on the ex- uh, on the Canuck extension, uh, which is in the the northern part of the the West Midlands network, uh, and also on the rivers uh, Ouse and Year in, in in Yorkshire. Um, lots of lots of stuff around the historic uh, structures as well. We're doing work on the. I'm never going to get the name right, Lewis. So I'm not going to try. I'm just going to call yeah, yeah. it the Ponty Aqueduct. It's easier that way. And try yeah. and embarrass myself by saying the Ponty Casilty. Uh, Bingley Five Rise, we're doing some works on that, um, as well as the Cane Hill flight. So lots of opportunities to, for customers to have a walk along the canal and maybe interact with some of our teams, have a chat about what we're doing. Hopefully we, we, we may be back this year if COVID allows. So yeah. maybe a couple of open days for people to come along and, and, and have a look and, and maybe go down in one or two locks and, and, and see what, you know, this once in a generation opportunity to, to go down and, and, and see what it's like working in the bottom of, bottom of a lock. In the course of doing those repairs, Dean, you know, what kind of challenges are you guys facing in particular, given the age of our canals? Yeah. Yeah. Really great, really great question. I mean, the balance between kind of protecting and preserving what is in effect an open air museum at the end of the day, Lewis, let's, mm. let's say what it is, you know, That's it's an true. open air museum, protecting that heritage value whilst also making sure that you're doing things using as modern techniques as, as you, as you possibly can. So that's always a bit of a healthy tension and, you know, we'll have people within our organisation and outside that think we should be doing it one way and another group of people that will think we should be doing it the the, the, the other. But I think as long as you're doing a sympathetic repair, recognising the heritage value of a particular structure. And I also think, you know, there's a lot to be said that canals have been around for 250 years and they've evolved over that time. You know, so different phases in, in society over the past 250 years have had an impact on that. And actually, you know, today's society is equally going to have that impact that in another 250 years we ought to be able to be aware of and recognise as well. You know, so if you're building a lock today, you'd definitely do it completely differently from what they from what they did 200 years ago. We built a lock in the West Midlands, sort of like the early part of the millennium. And, uh, you know, it was built out of reinforced concrete then it was just had a a brick face up the front so it looked like a lock and then if we were taking a lock a lock wall down and rebuilding it we'd we'd use modern techniques in which to do that of course of course i mean you mentioned earlier you know dean that the team is going to do a lot of work this winter you know in a a four-month period a lot lot is going to happen but that must be super challenging though surely yeah, yeah, we, we, we get like the complete opposite of most uh, contracting organisations. You know, <laughs> we do all of our work in the winter when, it, when it's cold and it's wet and there's loads of mud around. Uh, whereas, you know, lots of other organisations make the most of the summer months when the days are longer, uh, it's, it's, the weather's better. Um, although yeah, I have to say that a um, couple of couple of times this summer where the weather's been really good, you know, we've had a few few moans and groans from people going, oh, you know, it's really awful working in all this hot weather when you're doing physical work. So you have to think about it from from in that context as well. You know, so it, it does take us longer to do those jobs in the winter, Lewis, because the days are shorter. You can't oh. safely undertake that 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 job. You know, you've only got the hours daylight hours between kind of eight o'clock in the morning and, and around about four o'clock in the afternoon 
you haven't got that that um, um, those those longer days to make to make the most of really. Um, but you know we have to do what we've got to do to keep the canals running. You know, if we were to close down the the network in the summer, you know, when when all of our customers are about enjoying the canals, when all of our boaters are going around uh, and, and enjoying the most of the canal, then you know I think quite rightly we'd. Uh, We'd, we'd get we'd, we'd be under some pressure we'd be we'd have some questions asked of us wouldn't we you know oh 100 percent. i mean you don't, you're not getting the seven till seven in winter are you let's be honest you know and even longer we try and uh we try and make it as comfortable for the for the teams as we possibly can you know when we're scaffolding out a lock we'll have a roof a covering over the top of it and for those listeners who don't know lime take lime needs warmth and heat to cure so it's not great in the winter when you try to work with lime we often have heaters in the in the scaffolding there's two advantages for, for that lewis one is it obviously cures the lime mortar but it also keeps the guys nice and warm and comfortable in, in the winter as well so where we can we'll do we do those kind of things as well to make life a little a little better for our colleagues in the trust who are doing this vital work we're working on a 200 year old canal network in a 21st century world <laughs> yeah so what difficulties does that place on the construction team then one of the biggest challenges is you think about how the canals were set up 200 years ago and how the country looks. And in 200 years, you know, new towns have popped up. Existing towns are already there, have expanded into cities. Um, you know, urban areas have grown. Buildings have encroached more and more onto the side of the canal. So you only have to go down any, any city centre canal system and, you know, you've got uh, high-rise developments alongside it so how do you get the access to those kind of things you know and in a lot of instances we have to float the equipment the materials into site so that's the only option that we've got we, we, we'll use our work boats we'll we'll put floated cranes in on pontoons using the canal network get them to the lock and take them out at the lock site put lock gates in there float them down there all the materials that we need but equally in a rural location, how, how do you get them there? So it's not it's not straightforward when you've got a lock in the middle of nowhere. You know, you, sometimes you have to spend 40, 50, 60,000 pounds just either hiring a haul road or building a haul road to get your plant and equipment there. So, you know, we, we look at that and is it easier for us to do that? Is it it's cost effective? In 2019, uh, we used a helicopter Wow. Uh, to uh, to fly materials up to a reservoir that we were repairing, a March Hay reservoir in um, around around Manchester. So that's just completely inaccessible. There are not there aren't even any uh, aren't even any roads up to it. It's literally in the middle of the moors, uh, and it would have cost us hundreds of thousands of pounds to get materials up there. So, you know, we ended up hiring a helicopter and that transported all of the plant and equipment cabins up to the job and then brought them back again at the, when, the, when the work was finished and that was a much more cost effective way of doing it for, for somebody on the outside looking in Lewis I'm sure they'd go oh my gosh why would you hire a helicopter to that must have cost you a fortune yeah it cost us a fortune but it was cheaper than putting in a whole road don't get me wrong I know it was cost effective but let's just hope there's not too much more work to be done over there so what we can't ignore though Dean is climate change you know tell us something about how we're building more resilience into the fabric of our canals to really ensure that they are safe for the next 200 years. Yeah, sure, sure. So, so obviously, 
today's design criteria and, and techniques are, are much more stronger than they were 250 years ago when the canals were first built. So you have factors of safety built into all of those things that, that should give your listeners uh, a lot more comfort that what we're building is, is, more, is more resilient. For example, the figure of three lot that was washed away, you know, when we're rebuilding that, it, it'll look the same. But what you won't see is at the back of that is all the reinforcing that's gone into it, all the ground stabilisation that's gone into it to make sure that when we've got a flooding occurrence in that place again, it's not going to wash the lock away. So we, 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 we build extra strength into the bridges when we're building them. So again, to make sure that we're meeting, uh, you know, modern standards, modern designs. Uh, and at the end of the day, to the untrained eye, if you like, the, the passerby, they'll look exactly the same as they did before we started the work. Albeit they might look a little bit, the pointing on the bridge might look a little sharper. You know, the mortar between the bricks might look a little newer, but the general aesthetics of the bridge will, will look exactly the same. So, you know, we've never stood still on the canals. Uh, and I think one of the, when I look back, I, I see the, the systems that we've got, we've got in place and that we utilise. You know, the engineers that built them 250 years ago were absolutely incredible. Um, but nothing stands still. You know, engineering techniques improves as the years go on. Designs get better, more resilient. I think we've got a, when we go in there and repairing something, I think we get a much better result out of it and a much more resilient one. It should hopefully withstand some of those uh, those climate challenges that we face. Of course, we haven't got the money to do everything, Lewis, so invariably these things only happen when we go in and repair these works as either a priority or as an emergency. Thank you so much for joining us on Canalcast today, Dean. Thanks, Lewis. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Dean. It's wonderful to know that you and your team are working so hard each winter to keep our canals moving each summer. But how do we try to keep waterways open and accessible to all? And what happens when sometimes the unexpected happens? To find out, Canalcast got in touch with Regional Director of the Northwest, Daniel Greenhouge. Daniel, a pleasure to have you join us. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Lewis. And you? I'm very good. I'm very good. So, Daniel, tell me a bit about your patch, you know, the Northwest, and how you and your team keep our waterways running. Because from what I understand, it's one of the most challenging regions to manage. Yeah, so up here in the Northwest, our canals and, and rivers go from that sort of like leafy Cheshire area through to the, the Merseyside region and Greater Manchester up through Lancashire and all the way up into Cumbria. So geographically, we're really diverse. And this means that we've got a variety of assets and lots of different type of assets that we care for. We've got huge numbers of locks. We have to cross the Pennines in three locations. So, you know, it's quite a way up and it's quite a way down. So a huge amount of locks. And we've got some massive structures like our embankment, on the famous Straight Mile in Burnley. We've got big river navigation structures on the River Weaver. And we've obviously got the Cathedral of the Canals, which is the Anderton Boat Lift in Northwich. So, you know, we've got loads of assets and we also look after about a third of the Trust 74 reservoirs in our region. And because some of our canals were, were the first to be built, our assets are some of the oldest on the network. So this is compounded at a time when our canals are busier than ever. 
And not only the canal's busier than ever, you know, I can appreciate that, you know, when there's serious weather conditions, I'm sure that can pose some challenges. If you've visited us here in the northwest, Lewis, you'll know it rains a lot anyway. But what, what we are seeing is we're seeing some of these weather events coming in off the Atlantic in particular that hit the Pennines or hit the, the, the Cheshire Plains, dropping huge amounts of rain, um, which, which obviously ends up in our canals or rivers. And if we, if we tend to get an extreme weather event at the end of a wet period anyway, it can cause severe problems for our network. So... Earlier this year, the storm Kristoff that came in really had a huge impact on us, particularly in the Cheshire area and parts of Greater Manchester. Uh, and it resulted in a breach on the Shropshire Union Canal at Beeston. We had a landslip on the Trent and Mersey Canal uh, near to Anderton Boatlift. We had countless flooded structures and damage along the River Weaver. And one of our reservoirs in Greater Manchester at Elton near Bury uh, had a landslip as well. So this one event, unexpected, has, has caused upwards of five to seven million pounds worth of damage. That's money that we haven't planned to spend. It means that we have to react quickly. And, and this is at a time when our budgets are being challenged and everything seems to be costing more and inflation's rising anyway. So we seem to have this triple threat at the moment of the age of the canal network, the extreme weather events we're, we're facing and the financial constraints and things costing more money. Of course. And my question then is, of course, when you talk about one particular issue arising that can cost upwards of five to seven million pounds, are you getting the resources that you need to actually help counter that kind of problem? We have to say we get massive support in this region for the challenges that we face. I definitely have the, the biggest budget of the largest operational team and when incidents like storm christoph happen you know we, the, the my colleagues divert the required contract resource and money to be able to deal with these issues as quickly and as efficiently as we can our planned infrastructure repair works in the region we, we're nearly half or over half of the expenditure each year reflected on the condition of the assets in our region, which I do think reflects the challenges that we face. The reason why it's important is we need our waterways to be open, accessible and safe for us to be able to deliver the well-being that we want for our waterway users and, and, and our communities to enjoy. So my particular job, it's probably right that I spend about 80% of my time and energy focused on making sure that our waterways are open, accessible and safe so that we can build on that and deliver well-being for our communities and waterway users. Of course, and as a waterways and well-being charity, that's absolutely got to be the priority. Do you know what I mean? If the, at the end of the day, if the canals and waterways aren't accessible, then we can't offer the service that we're here to provide. So with that being said then, like, what kind of positive changes are we actually making to the infrastructure of the waterways so that more people can enjoy them? Some of our infrastructure repairs, Lewis, it just goes unseen because it could be at quite a remote location like one of our reservoirs up in the Pennines or on culverts that go underneath the canal. So sometimes people don't even see the work that that, that, that goes on in, in the background. But doing this vital work just allows us to transform areas, get local communities involved and, and get these local communities appreciative of their local canal or river. And 
just here in the northwest, some of our highlights are how we've managed to transform sort of the, the perceptions of Manchester's canals, particularly through the city centre. We've done lots of work trying to introduce some green infrastructure, some floating gardens, work really hard to make it cleaner and bluer and greener. And we, we've been awarded the green flag status for a city centre waterway, which, you know, we're really proud of and uh, we're putting a lot of work in to uh, maintain. We, we also were lucky to get the first blue flag for an inland marina at Alba Docks and Salthouse Docks in Liverpool. This is in the historic dock complex and it recognises the cleanliness of the water and the engaging space that, that, that we manage there. But I, I, I think one of my perfect embodiments of a trust for waterways and well-being is what we've done in Burnley. And we've got a regeneration project at Finsley Gate. And this was off the back of we had to repair the embankment. So again, a piece of work that's unseen, spent well over a million pound relining the canal and fixing the embankment. This was then allowed a restoration project at what was basically a derelict wharf building that's now been brought to life with partners and funders. We're doing environmental enhancements along that canal corridor. And off the back of that, that place is now totally transformed and delivering so much well-being. We've got our community routes programme, got our super slowway programme, and that's just a perfect example of how investing in our infrastructure delivers well-being for communities in a place like Burma. 100%. And I mean, this is an example of some fantastic proactive changes that the trust is having to make. But understandably, not everything goes smoothly. You know, of course, we had the incident at Toddbrook. I don't know if you can shed a bit of light on how the trust had to respond to that particular challenge. And then now what you've been able to do since then. Yeah, so Toddbrook was a real challenge for the trust and all the partners that helped us deal with the uh, immediate situation and then it's been a challenge for the, 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 the community who've engaged with us throughout since the event. Following again another extreme weather event, the spillway at Toddbrook, the auxiliary spillway was damaged, we implemented our emergency response plan, we brought in partners from the local resilience forum, um, so police, fire local authority and really worked with many partners to shore up the damaged spillway draw down the water and get the reservoir into a safe space and we were helped by the armed forces with the royal air force and the army so we got that reservoir drawn down to a safe state and really since then our focus has been about keeping it safe engaging with the community and coming up with a permanent design solution. And we, we've had a number of consultation sessions throughout the summer. And we're actually pleased recently to be able to send all the residents of Whaley Bridge a newsletter to share our plans for the permanent repair of Tobbrook Reservoir. And we've just submitted our planning application to do that too. I think to hear how the Trust has not only had to respond to a challenging situation, but come back stronger is amazing and so with that being said you know it's clear that we can overcome some of these challenges and you know if we get the investment and resources we need what does the next hundred years of the canals in the northwest then look like in your opinion daniel so i think we've got a real bright future i think they've had an amazing past i think we've doing lots of great stuff in the present but they, they really do have a bright future um i think one of 
the, the key areas in, in, in how the, our canals and rivers can help us tackle climate change and, and the climate crisis that we face. And we're talking about them perhaps helping kickstart the green industrial revolution. Canals are great spaces in terms of they can provide active travel so we can get people out of cars by walking along our towpaths, cycling along our towpaths. But they can also help with energy generation. We've, we've got a hydro uh, electric scheme going at one of our big sluice sites on the River Weaver. And there's lots of other examples throughout the country where we can use our waterways to generate energy. There's been a lot of talk in the news recently about air source and ground source heat pumps. Well, actually water source heat pumps are actually far more efficient than both of them. And we've got examples where we've installed them in canals and rivers that to heat and cool buildings. But they can also just bring that element of nature and help nature recover by connecting green spaces through a linear asset. We can improve biodiversity, we can improve habitats and really play a part in, in helping our canals be cleaner, bluer and greener and really support our cities, urban environments and our rural environments too. And when it's like that and people feel engaged with it and see that the canals can make a positive impact for the present and the future, that's when local people and communities will really start caring for the canals themselves. They'll get involved. They might adopt a section of canal and it, it, it will just be a, a much better place, much more engaging and we'll have a much better environment for it. I think you're so right, Daniel. Now, I think the fact that it just goes to show that when we use the word asset, when we talk about the canals and waterways, we genuinely mean asset for so many people, which is exciting. So with that being said, Daniel, I just want to say a massive, massive thank you for joining us today on Canalcast and for sharing with our amazing audience some of the fantastic work that you and the team are doing in the Northwest. No, thanks for having me, Lewis, and uh, good to see you. So again, it was brilliant to talk to Daniel and really hear about the tremendous work that him and the team are doing in the Northwest in terms of being able to not only take care of some of the oldest part of our canal network, but also to proactively ensure that the canals and waterways can serve future generations. So a big thank you to Daniel, Dean and Sally for telling us more about how we work hard every day to keep our waterways open and accessible to all of us. And if you want to learn more about how we repair and strengthen our canal network every winter, search for Virtual Open Days on our website to watch videos from our teams at work. Canalcast will be taking a little break now, but we'll be back next year with more stories and insights from the Canal River Trust team. Until then, we hope you enjoy spending a little more time by water.